We're going to be in Acts chapter 21 this morning. Most of you know that I swam for a good part of my youth. I think it was 11 or 12 years, I think, if I remember right. And I would classify myself as a good but not necessarily great swimmer. That's a, you know, I was um, the one on my high school team. I was primarily the, the guy that always swam the 500 freestyle the 200 free. I was considered a distancer by some standards. That's not really distance, but in high school it was. And um, I was usually, I think there was one other guy that could probably beat me in that, but for the most part, I was probably the best distance swimmer on the team for a, for a little bit, but I wouldn't, I never made state or anything like that. So I was good, but I wasn't great. But what always drove me wasn't so much winning as much as um, setting my own goals and sort of beating those things. And maybe that's because I wasn't somebody who was on the podium all the time. I won a couple of medals and some ribbons and stuff, but because I wasn't always the guy standing on the podium, I wasn't driven as much by that as I was just improving. And I was a hard worker, and I remember this one particular year, I think it was my junior year, the coach at the beginning of the year handed out um, index cards and wanted us to write down the goals that we had for each one of our events, the times that we wanted to get. I remember putting down a time for the 500 freestyle that was a significant improvement over my previous time. And I remember he, after he collected all those and had time to review them, he brought my card back to me and he handed it to me and he said, I think I need you to redo this goal. And I said, why? And he's like, because it's a little bit too out there. You need to come up with something a little bit you know, more appropriate. And so I said, but that's the time I want to get. And he's like, but that's just not reasonable. You know, I've been swimming for, at that time, I think probably eight years or so. And you kind of get to that point where, you know, it's one thing if you're, you know, first year of swimming and you improve by a, by a minute. That's one thing, you know. But after you've been doing it for a while, and you guys would know this from your running, right? It's just a little bit, you know, um, it's a little harder to take chunks of time off. As you, and he looked at this and he thought it was too much of a, an ask. But I remember I was a little stubborn. I said, no, I that's the time I want to get. And I could see on his face he wasn't necessarily happy or disappointed but he just was kind of like okay whatever you know this is Mike so he took the card back and um, that was what I wanted to hit for the year and so um, I was one of the few freshmen that swam on the morning workouts we had a drill sergeant that ran our morning workouts and I was one of four freshmen that was on that my first year and continued to do that and um, I would stick around for the afternoon varsity workouts and then I would even stick around for the JV workouts after that so there were some days where I was in the pool five to six hours which is unusual even by today's standards. But it was something because I was driven to do it. I loved swimming, I loved working out, but I had in mind that I wanted to get that goal. And now because my coach didn't think I could do it, there was more pressure to get it done, right? And so I remember I worked the whole season at that, and I gradually took off time, and I just remember getting to the very last meet of the season, sectionals. And I was still, I think, a good four or five seconds away from hitting that time. And in a 500 freestyle, that's about, you know, a second every 100 yards or so. And that's a pretty good chunk to kind of take off. But we taper for it. That's when you're supposed to get your best times, you know. So I was still kind of hopeful. And I remember um, walking up for my event. And I remember I remember what the pool looked like. And I walked past the coach on this side. And he kind of kind of looked at me, gave me this look like, you realize this, this is it. And he knew what I was thinking. And um, so I remember walking over to him. I looked at him. And I just repeated the time, not arrogantly, not proudly, just sort of hopefully that, okay, this this was it. And I knew it was going to be a big ask. Well, I remember getting in, I swam, and I I remember the event, 
And I remember I hit that wall, and I wasn't even concerned. You normally are concerned at least where you're going to place. You know, like you, you're kind of, when you touch the wall, you're looking underwater. You see the Olympic swimmers do this sometimes. You know, they want to see who, who out-touched them. I wasn't even concerned. I was only concerned with one thing, and it was whether or not I hit that time. And I remember hitting that wall, swinging my head around, and looking back at the board. I got out of the water. I walked over to the coach. He had this huge smile on his face because I not only got a best time, but I beat the goal by three seconds. Talk about being shocked. Now, the only reason I share that is because as I've been thinking about what we're going to study this morning, and as I think about what we've been, what we've been going through through the book of Acts, I'm convinced that there are some things that are more satisfying when they come through difficulty or adversity or there's something you work for. And that was certainly one of them. There's a reason why in some 11 or 12 years of swimming, that particular event, that particular moment stands out as I think about my swimming time. And it's because it was something that I, that was, I mean, three workouts a day. You know, I mean, I was giving up time with friends and giving up some time that I didn't work quite as much. And it's because I swam so much. And so when I actually got out of the water and saw that I had accomplished the goal that I had set, it was one of the most satisfying times in swimming, more important than if I had qualified for state or, you know, if I ended up on the podium. That's the way life kind of is. And I believe it's that way with our faith as well. You know, Jesus told us it wasn't going to be easy. And I think we've had it really, really, really easy here for a lot of people in the United States because we haven't faced persecution and other things. And I almost, as, we, as I looked at this passage this morning, I almost felt somewhat apologetic because we've talked about persecution on a number of times and it's not a fun topic to talk about. It's not something that we, we relish. We'd much rather talk about all the wonderful things about being a follower of Christ, wouldn't we? And yet in the book of Acts, we find that there's this balance between the growth of the gospel, but the persecution that follows it. And so in some respects, as I looked at this passage, I was like, oh, I've got to talk about persecution again. They're going to, they're going to hate this, you know? But that's the reality of it. But the one thing I've realized as I've gone through the study of Acts here, and as I've been thinking about what's been happening in the United States around us, is that I've actually been encouraged in my own faith. Because it forces us, and it's forced me to think about how serious am I? As I laid in bed last night, I was thinking, boy, am I prepared if I ever have to face serious persecution? And I I began to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't think I've got it in me. I really don't. But I'm reminded how Jesus said, don't worry about it, because when the moment comes, I will give you what you need to say by the Holy Spirit. And so what I find is that as much as, as it's a downer to think about persecution and to, and to read the scriptures and to study and, and to go, you got to talk about persecution again, I find myself being encouraged in my faith and finding that it's worth it because it's difficult. And our faith should be difficult. And it may get, I believe it will get, more difficult for us here. And so as we enter into these last few chapters of the book of Acts, we're going to talk about persecution. We're going to talk about other things too. But we see that this whole last third of the book of Acts involves persecution. It's Paul's travel from ultimately Miletus up 
to Jerusalem or up to uh, Jerusalem and then on into Rome and it's all about Paul ultimately his journey as he's being mistreated as he's facing injustice and we're going to see how Paul handles that and there's some great encouraging things in that in fact the last two passages that I've studied I'm now up into chapter 22 and 23 there's some great things we're going to learn from how Paul handled it not just in his attitude, but his response to it, that will actually give us some things that we can prepare for and help us to understand how should we respond depending on where things go here. So there's going to be some great stuff, but it's going to involve some discussion of persecution. So that's where we're at today. In our passage last week, Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders to follow his example in shepherding the flock. And one of the examples that he gave was that of self-sacrifice placing himself second, if you will. In Acts 20, he revealed that he was heading to Jerusalem in spite of the fact that in every city Paul went to, the Holy Spirit testified to him that he'd face some type of difficulty. And we see that in Paul's life. Almost every city Paul went into, he faced some type of adversity, some type of tribulation or persecution, or at least opposition almost in every place he went. And so he said, look, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I know that the Holy Spirit has already told me that everywhere I go, this is what I'm going to face. He fully expected to face that as he got to Jerusalem. Now our passage today is an abbreviated account of his journey from Miletus, where he met the Ephesian elders last week, all the way up to Jerusalem. It includes two small accounts today that reinforce the danger that he would face It appears that Luke's primary purpose in sharing this passage with us today is twofold. The first is that these verses serve as a transition into the final third of the book. He's kind of leaving behind, in some respects, this description of the massive growth growth of the church, and he's now going to focus primarily on Paul. And the the period, it takes about three or four years, and so from this point to the end of the book is about three to four years, but it's going to follow Paul through his persecution, from Miletus into Jerusalem, up on into Rome. So one purpose by Luke here appears to be that transition, that this passage today is going to be that transitionary piece that gets us from Paul's ministry to now his travel as he goes to Rome. The second purpose appears to be that they give us a glimpse into the faith and courage with which Paul faced the tribulation as he marched towards Rome. Let's look at this. Twice along this passage, or along this journey, Paul was warned by others of what would await him in Jerusalem. So not only had Paul been told by the Holy Spirit that in every city he would go to, he would seem to face this, but now we have these two additional warnings given to Paul about what he would face. The first warning comes when he landed in a place called Tyre. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21. When we had departed from there, <clears throat> from them, and we had set sail, we ran, to a, ran a straight course to Cause, and the next day Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, that means they basically sailed south of it, um, <clears throat> landed in, uh, he said, we landed in Tyre there, for there was a ship that was unloading his cargo. After looking up, the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. So Paul ends up in Tyre here, meets some disciples. We are not told who it was that founded the church there at Tyre. But Paul, as they land there, they immediately recognize there's disciples there, so they look them up. And what we're told here 
is that the disciples there kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. There's different ways to interpret this. One is that the Holy Spirit had told them, tell Paul not to go. But that's not what's really here because we're already, we realize in the rest of scriptures here that Paul was told to go on to Jerusalem. The fact that the um, disciples here were warning him repeatedly not to go comes from the fact that somehow the Holy Spirit had revealed to them what Paul was going to face. In other words, there's a slight difference there. One would be, hey, go tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The other is, Paul's going to face tribulation when he gets to Jerusalem. And that's what the Holy Spirit did. In fact, part of that's, I won't get into the, the, the Greek there, but the, the particular um, grammar that's used there, the, the um, infinitive that's used there, pretty much describes that, that the Holy Spirit was simply revealing to the disciples what Paul was going to face. For what reason he might do that, not really sure. Maybe it was to encourage Paul, maybe it was to pray for Paul, but that's what had happened. And so the imperfect tense that's used there means that they did it repeatedly. So throughout Paul's week there, they continued to say, Paul, don't go. They were concerned about him. They knew what he was going to face. Now, they might not have had all the details. All they knew is that the Holy Spirit somehow had impressed upon their hearts and their minds that Paul was going to face some difficulty as he went to Jerusalem. And so as you might expect, we wouldn't want Paul to go, would we? If we knew that that's what he was walking into, we would probably be begging him as well, and that's what these disciples did. Now, in spite of their pleading, Paul continued on on his journey. If you look at verses 5 through 6, When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying... We said farewell to one another, then we went on board the ship, and they returned to their home again. Isn't this an amazing picture? Now remember, Paul had never been here before. We don't know who founded the church at Tyre. Acts doesn't really tell us. It's unlikely that these disciples had ever met Paul before, and yet here they are after spending a week with him. He must have endeared himself to them, because here are these people, these disciples, that walk him out to where he's going to board the ship. They kneel on the beach with him, and they begin to pray with him there. He must have made quite an impression. And the impression he made was at a time when they were warning him not to go to Jerusalem. I would assume that they must have seen a tremendous amount of courage in Paul at this time, and may have admired that. So they pray together. They knew he was going to Jerusalem. But even the wives and the children came out to send him on his way. So that's the first warning. Paul ends up at Tyre. The disciples say, don't go. But he decides to go anyway. The second warning comes when he lands at Caesarea. Look at verses 7 through 9. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters, and they were prophetesses. Now we remember Philip from Acts chapter 6. Anybody remember who that was? He was one of the seven they had selected to help care for the feeding of the widows. When we come to Acts chapter 8, the believers are all forced out of Jerusalem, and so Philip is kicked out of Jerusalem as well after Paul or after Saul started persecuting them. 
We're told Philip traveled down to Samaria and he began to minister there until the Lord raptured him, literally sucked him up and took him away supernaturally, dropped him in a place called Azatos. From there he traveled up the coast, evangelizing in each of the cities, and he ultimately settled in Caesarea. And we find out here he's got a family, he's got four daughters, and they're all gifted in prophecy. This is actually 20 years after Philip had arrived in Caesarea. And so he had been here in Caesarea ministering faithfully on behalf of the Lord. And now Paul, the former persecutor who ran him out of Jerusalem, shows up at his doorstep. I wonder what that reunion was like. I would imagine Paul may have said, Dude, I'm kind of sorry, but this all worked out for the best, didn't it? And I would imagine that Philip probably recanted his 20 years of ministering to the Apostle Paul much like and saying, hey dude, what you meant for bad, God meant for good. And it must have been a tremendous reunion, if you will, of sorts. So Paul's there with Philip and Caesarea staying at his house. His companions are with him. And out of the blue, this prophet named Agabus comes down from Judea, we're told, most likely from Jerusalem specifically, since that's where the church was. Look at verses 10 through 11. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in his hands, and he said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over into the hands of Gentiles. So Agabus' prophecy appears to be more detailed than what Paul had received before. Remember, Paul himself had been warned by the Holy Spirit that in every city he faced persecution. He didn't know exactly what Jerusalem would hold. In fact, he tells, I think, the Ephesian elders that, that I don't know what exactly I'm going to face. I just know that the Holy Spirit's warned me that trouble awaits me in every city. Then when we found just a few minutes ago the disciples begging him not to go, it doesn't appear they provided him any details, but Agabus now comes down and provides more details. As Paul gets to Jerusalem, the Jews actually would bind him, would hand him over to the Gentiles. Paul receives more details now on exactly what kind of persecution he's going to face. He's going to be arrested. That's what binding there means. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Paul likely understood that that meant he was going to be handed over for trial to the Romans. That's not a friendly thing. Romans were brutal. They were known for it. So that's the warning, the second warning he receives here in this passage. Much like the believers at Tyre, upon hearing what the Holy Spirit had to say to the disciples, they begin to beg Paul not to go. Just like the brethren at Tyre did. Look at verse 12. When we heard this, this would include Luke, when we heard this, we as well as the local residents, meaning the other brethren that were there, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Again, not surprising. Agabus shows up, says, Paul, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be handed over to the Romans. I think we would probably do the same thing. Paul, don't go. Don't go. Look at Paul's response. Verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping? Breaking my heart? 
For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Probably not what they expected. I'm going to sort of label this section as Paul responding with courageous faith. Paul responds with courageous faith. He was obviously moved because he says that it, he was weeping or they were weeping and it was breaking his heart to see it. It's interesting. His concern is over them, not his own safety. I was rereading parts of Second Corinthians last night when Paul was writing to them. He had written a prior letter to them that caused them sorrow. Sounds like Paul was pretty brutal in that letter. Paul even says, I didn't regret it, but I did regret it. And he kind of goes back and forth about the sorrow he called him. He's, and the impression you get as you read that is, Paul was somewhat sorry, if you will, for the sorrow that he caused them, but he recognizes that that sorrow was a good godly sorrow and caused them to repent. And so there was this balance that Paul felt of, I kind of gave you a spanking and I felt bad for it. But I also recognize that that was a good thing because the spanking helped turn you. We all know that as parents, don't you? When you discipline your kids, you don't want to do it, but you know it's necessary. And so Paul was not a man who lacked compassion. And here we have this example where Paul's heart is broken because he knows that they're weeping over him going to Jerusalem and being arrested. And it breaks his heart because of that. However, he insisted that he was prepared to not only face imprisonment, but he said, hey, I'm willing to die for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. I would argue that that shouldn't surprise us because we've seen Paul respond in similar fashion before. I'd like to do a what I'm going to call a catalog of some of Paul's responses that we've seen already. I'll give you the citations. You can look them up on your own. But when Paul was at Pisidia and Antioch, the Jews started to object to his teaching. Luke wrote that Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly in spite of the persecution that these Jews had forced upon them, and they were actually run out of the city, finally. That's Acts chapter 13, verse 46. So Paul, in the face of this persecution at Pisidia and Antioch, they continued to speak out boldly until they were literally forced out of the city, until they couldn't do it anymore. At Iconium, Luke says that the disbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. But Paul's response, Luke says he spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. That's Acts chapter 14, verse 2 through 7. In fact, there again he stuck around until they rose up and attempted to stone him. So Paul, in the face of this persecution at Iconium, sticks around until they try to kill him and pretty much kick him out of the city. At Lystra, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came down. They stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. And what's Paul's response? (laughs) He gets back up. He goes back into the city. Until the next day when he leaves for Derby. But after that, he returns to Lystra, Antioch. And Iconium, that's Acts chapter 14. So he goes, he goes there, he preaches, they drag him out of the city, they beat him almost to death, leave him there, he gets up, goes back in, says, guys, I think I need to leave for a short time, but I'm coming back. And that's exactly what he does. He goes away for a short time, then he goes right back to the city where they dragged him out and left him for dead. When the city leaders in Philippi arrested him and Silas, beat them, threw them into prison unjustly, 
And then they tried to send them away secretly after violating their rights as Roman citizens. What does Paul do? I'm not going anywhere. You tell those guys to come here and talk to me personally. And he forces the city magistrates to come to him and basically begin to beg him to leave the city. Paul was bold. Stood up to the people that had just beat him and put him into prison. The only time we see Paul possibly struggle with maintaining his courage was when he faced similar persecution in Corinth. You remember that the Lord encouraged them by saying, Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. I've got people here. And so Paul stuck around for another year and a half. That's Acts chapter 18. One final example of Paul's courageous faith came when his traveling companions were attacked and dragged into the theater in Ephesus when they had the riot in Ephesus. Paul immediately wants to run back into the theater. His friends have been dragged in there. And if it hadn't been for some of his political friends, this is Acts chapter 19, if it hadn't been for some of his political friends, political leaders that said, don't go in there, Paul, and they prevented him from going in, he would have gone in to the theater where his friends had been dragged in in front of the angry mob. Now think about that. He asked the question, where does this sort of courageous faith come from? I mean, it's pretty remarkable when you think about what Paul did. Where does it come from? Well, I'm going to let Paul speak for himself. Join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. We're going to read a chunk here, but I'm going to let Paul tell us where this kind of courage comes from. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Did you catch that? Not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also spoke, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up also with Jesus and will present us with him. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, for momentary, light affliction is producing for us eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life." Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God and gave to us the spirit as a pledge therefore having always or having or being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the Lord we walk by faith not by sight we are of good courage I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord therefore we also have as our ambition whether at home or absent to be pleasing to him For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Does that not give us the answer as to where that kind of courage comes from? Go back to chapter 21. What's the disciples' response? The last thing we see in our passage, specifically this morning, is how Paul's traveling companions and his disciples, or the disciples at Caesarea, respond to his decision to go against their wishes and continue on to Jerusalem. You notice it says, And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. By going silent means they stopped begging him. But you notice they were committed to one thing. The Lord of the will. Or the the will of the Lord. They were willing to accept whatever it was that God had planned for Paul. You know, it's easy to accept the Lord's will when the results from our earthly perspective are positive, isn't it? It's a lot harder when we don't know what the future holds. Or when we suspect that the future may not be filled with joy and instead be filled with difficulty and hardship. It's a lot harder to accept the Lord's will when it involves pain or discomfort or tribulation, difficulties. I think the only way to really possibly understand accepting the Lord's will with difficulties can again be explained by Paul. Go to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how we ought to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he has predestined, he's referring to us, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over to all to us, or for us, will, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who raised, who is at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what was in the mind of Paul as he's heading to Jerusalem. What is there to fear? Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. God is going to use this for good because I love him. So when the disciples look at Paul and say, okay, Paul, we'll stop begging and pleading with you. We're going to trust the Lord on this one. That's the mentality that allowed them to do that. Our faith and trust in the will of God is grounded in all kinds of promises. But as you look through that Romans 8 passage, we see a number of things. The Lord will send His Holy Spirit to intercede for us according to His will. The Lord will cause all things to work together for our good. He's already ordained our eternal destiny. He sacrificed his own son on our behalf. What more could he possibly do? And Jesus is going to intercede for us. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from Christ. How could we not accept the Lord's will, knowing those promises? Even in the face of persecution. I believe that we are facing unprecedented times here in the United States. Even many places around the world. God, I think, is clearly doing something. I've never been somebody who believes that we can predict when Christ is going to return. We don't know the day or the hour. When I was in seminary, I've shared this before, we were talking about eschatology. It was one of my eschatology courses, and the professor made a rather astute observation. He said, you can go into the library here, there's a whole section on eschatology, and there's one thing every one of those books has in common. Any one of them that predicted when Christ is coming back, they're all wrong. <laughs> I didn't mean they were wrong theologically, just that when we try to predict, it seems every generation thinks this one might be it, and it may very well be, but we do clearly see how the tides are shifting, and we do see the direction in which this world is marching. And in many respects, we see an acceleration of the things that Jesus promised. I'll give you some statistics that help us to ferret this out. There are some very positive and encouraging things taking place in Christianity and throughout the world. Overall, Christianity is growing faster than the world's population, which means so many babies are being born, there are more Christians, people being converted to Christ. That's a very positive thing, is it not? While the growth of Christianity in Europe and North America is stagnant or declining, it is exploding in Asia and Africa. There are more Christians in Africa today than there are in the United States. 
the percentage of the world that is unevangelized continues to shrink. In 1900, about 55% of the world was unevangelized, had no witness for Christ. Now think about this. It's 2022, 120 years later, basically, only 29% of the world is unevangelized. It's almost been cut in half in 120 years. Think about that in the span of the church. 2,000 years since the church was established, up to about 100 years ago, over half the world still had not heard of Jesus Christ. But in just the last 120 years, another 25% almost, actually more than that, has a gospel witness. So right now, only about 25 to maybe maximum 30% of the world still needs a Christian witness. That's pretty remarkable when you consider it took us almost 2,000 years to get to half and only 120 to take and shave off another 25%. God is clearly doing something. The number of non-Christians who know at least one Christian has grown fourfold after the, over the last 100 years used to be that you would ask many people around the world if they'd ever met a Christian, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. That's becoming less and less and less common today. So it's some great news, what God is clearly doing. But, like the book of Acts, as the gospel advances and people get saved, persecution increases, and that's also exactly what we see. So you might say, good news, bad news, but the persecution isn't necessarily bad news. You have to put it in perspective, but we'll frame it that way for just a moment. Christians are still the most persecuted group in the world, and the trends are getting worse. Since 2013, the number of Christians martyred for their faith every year has doubled, and the number of countries in which Christians are persecuted has grown to over 140 in other words, the number of countries that are antagonistic towards Christianity continues to increase. Instances of imprisonment, torture, rape, expulsion, forced labor, execution, and other forms of persecution against Christians have continued to increase, with the majority being where Christianity is growing the most, Africa and Asia. That's according to Open Doors. If you want to get a good look at what's happening around the world in terms of persecution, just look up Open Doors. They track it some staggering statistics as to what's happening with Christians around the world. According to Open Doors, over 100 churches are attacked, burned, or vandalized every month around the world, and an average of 11 Christians are killed for their faith every day around the world. So while we see the gospel advancing and marching at a very rapid pace around the world, we also see persecution and hatred of Christians escalating at the same time. That's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. The enemy does not want the gospel to advance, and he will do everything he can to put an end to it. While we're not facing, I'd say not currently facing, the kind of persecution that Open Doors talks about in the rest of the world, here in the United States, we're not exempt. Should uh, expect, I believe, that persecution will increase here as well. I'm going to share something else with you that's kind of interesting to me. The American Thinker um, published an article back in 2015 predicting the rise of persecution here in the U.S. And the author claimed it would happen in five stages. I want you to see if you recognize any of these things that he predicted back in 2015 happening here. 
The first stage begins with attempts to stereotype Christians. The author gave the example of President Obama referring to Christians as bitter and clinging to our guns, religion, and then um, basically a lack of compassion towards people who aren't like us. Do you remember that? So the first stage is stereotyping Christians into a certain image that doesn't really match who they truly are. See that happening today, maybe? The second stage involves justifying the vilification and hatred of Christians because of our refusal to accept changes in moral values or new norms of society. We're called closed-minded, intolerant, bigoted, unfair, homophobic, mean-spirited, science deniers. I've even seen recently some of these school boards refer to those who object to having things like CRT and sexual education and LGBT issues taught in schools. I've even heard some of these school officials come out and claim that Christians are destroying culture and society by such things. He said that's the second stage. They will vilify us for causing damage to culture and society. We're the problem, not the stuff we see. Abortion's not the issue. It's preventing a woman from being able to kill that baby. That's more of a moral disservice to this culture. It leads to overpopulation. It doesn't allow her to enjoy her life and have the best life she can. You see, Christians are the problem. So they vilify us. Stage three, he said, involves marginalizing Christians' role in society. So it comes by stereotyping, then by vilifying, and now by actually marginalizing Christians. We should be excluded from places of power or positions of power or influence like politics, academia, media. Do we find any of that taking place today? Professors have lost jobs at universities because they don't fall in line with any number of things. Professors being fired because they refer to refer to a guy as a girl and a girl as a guy or because maybe they don't follow the evolutionary model of science. Many Christian universities have done the same thing. Sadly, I hesitate to call them Christian. So stage three involves pushing Christians to the outer parts of society. They can't be in schools. They can't hold certain jobs. They can't even conduct business in some places because we will have local authorities and city governments that will say, no, 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 you can't have that business here. The fourth stage involves prohibiting or criminalizing Christian ideas, behaviors, and practices, not just in public, but even within churches, businesses, and educational institutions. For, in, for, for instance, prohibiting Christian displays in public places. You go to Washington, there's still all kinds of Bible verses on many of our monuments. Many places, those are starting to be removed, torn down. Lawsuits filed because you can't have Ten Commandments in a court of law. Bans against teachers, coaches, engaging in any form of religious expression. Right? I just saw yesterday, there's a, the Supreme Court has decided to take up the case of a, either a teacher or a coach of some kind. I didn't read the whole entire article. Whether or not he should have had the right, he lost his job because of praying with students. There was something not too long ago where there was a coach who simply bowed his head on the sidelines and lost his job simply for bowing his head by himself on the sidelines, lost his job. How about making it illegal for counselors to help teens escape sexual 
sin. I shared with Dustin and Dave Rancifer. Some of you went to the training by um, Faith Baptist, or Faith, what's called now Faith Biblical Counseling. Um, when I was in seminary, I went to um, West Lafayette, Indiana for the counselor training. I didn't want to take the seminary course in, in counseling. Instead, I wanted a new thetic model, it's called, and so I went down to Faith Church down in West Lafayette, um, the largest biblical counseling ministry in the United States. They have been under attack for the last nine or ten years by the city council, trying to shut them down. Right now they're considering an ordinance that would make it illegal for them to even talk to one of their own church members, teenagers, that come to them for help dealing with sexual sin. It would make it illegal for them to share the Bible with them. Threatened with fines of $1,000 per day per incident. The city council. You can go online and you can look at Steve Weyer's response to it. A gracious, godly response, but they've said, we're not doing it. We're not going to, we're just going to continue to preach. But when you listen to the way this has worked out, this is a city ordinance that is specifically targeted at faith church. They are deliberately trying to shut them down because of some LGBT agenda that the city council has. That's the fourth stage this guy predicted. How many times have we seen in the news photographers or cake makers or other Christian-owned businesses that are told they can't conduct business by those principles? So they're stereotyped, or then vilified, or then marginalized, then we're prohibited. The last stage involves persecuting Christians outright. Obviously involves violence against Christians, vandalizing churches, frivolous criminal criminal charges and lawsuits, but it also includes things like attacks by the media, forcing Christians to engage in things that go against, that go against their convictions. Um, these things sound awfully familiar to us, don't they? I don't want to be a cosmic killjoy. It's been a good ride. But it looks like the enemy has finally decided he's going to ramp up things here. I'm convinced what this individual laid out for us. He's not a prophet. Seems pretty wise, though, to think that just seven years ago, this is what he said would likely happen here, and we see those things now happening here at breakneck speed. We don't know where they'll end up. It's rare that things go the other direction, but it can't happen. It may happen, but we should be prepared in case it doesn't. And I think Paul's example for us today of courage is a good example for us. So what should our response be? Well, first, like Paul, we need to develop courageous faith. We need to continue to pursue and to complete the mission for which Christ has given us. Second, we should resolve ourselves to accept God's will in the matter. No matter what the future may bring, we should be content to say the Lord's will. Now, that's not an easy thing to say. Lord, is this the way you want this country to go? Is this the kind of thing you want the church here to face? If it is, 
then it serves his purpose. And we should look at it and say, the Lord's will be done. That's hard for us to do sometimes. Like I said, it's been a good ride, hasn't it? You know, we've had it really easy here. God has used us and used the United States in some powerful, mighty ways, but that doesn't mean that we won't face persecution at some point. And it appears that that may be coming our way. Like I said, I almost feel like apologizing. I don't want to bring you down. But the reality of it is, like I said, this should encourage us in our faith. It really should. We should be emboldened. It's much like when you, and I'll share just a worldly example, you know, it's much like when that bully shows up on the playground. Early on, sometimes people are afraid, but after a while they get a little tired of it and you find people develop a certain amount of courage with that bully, don't they? It's like it has this way of emboldening them and they'll defend that small little guy that's getting beat up. And maybe they'll get punched in the face and maybe the bully will, you know, do a but it can have a way of encouraging and emboldening. And we're told that the Holy Spirit will do that for us. So while we may not feel up to the task right now, the Lord's promise is that we will be up to the task because he'll give us the spirit, the words to say, the things to do. And I believe that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. I'm going to wrap it up this morning once more with words from the Apostle Paul. This is from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Starting in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than, I, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing or reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who are walking according to the pattern you have in, you've seen in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their, is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. For the, um, excuse me, for the power 
that he has given to subject all things to himself. That's why we do it. So as we look at the Apostle Paul, we see him heading to Jerusalem, knowing what will await him. But in that difficulty, in that tribulation that he'll face, he's got one thing on his mind. Faithfulness to Christ. And someday standing before him 